Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Sarah Wise talks with Dr. Zara Patel about the recent IFAR publication, International Consensus Statement on Allergy and Rhinology, on the topic of olfaction. Hi, welcome to this edition of Scoop It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Sarah Wise from Atlanta, Georgia. Today I'm joined by Dr. Zara Patel from Stanford University in California, and we're going to discuss the recent IFAR publication, International Consensus Statement on Allergy and Rhinology, or ICAR as we've come to know it, under the topic of olfaction. So welcome Zara and congratulations to you and your co-authors on the paper. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's wonderful to be here with you. So um, I think we all realize that olfaction has become an incredibly hot topic lately. I'd love to hear why you and your co-authors wanted to undertake this ICAR statement and what you felt like the importance of it was. Yeah. Olfaction has always been really interesting to me. And as you know, I've been researching in this area for the past decade of my career. But of course, with the recent pandemic and having at least the early variants of COVID have such a striking, uh, dramatic loss of taste and smell as part of their symptomatology and presentation, now millions more people around the world are affected by a loss of sense of smell and taste. And this has caused a raising of awareness, which is maybe one of the silver linings of the pandemic, uh, because now more and more people understand how important this sense is to our well-being, our quality of life, really who we are as human beings. And it's, it's sparked a lot of new interest in people doing research in the area. As this started happening, I and some others who have been researching in this area for a very long time began to realize that there are some things about research in olfaction that are slightly different than research in other areas. And some studies coming out were making the same mistakes that we made, you know, 10 years ago. And we thought it was the optimal time to really gather all of the evidence that we have about clinical olfaction and think about all the different myriad etiologies, including COVID-19, but there are so many others, sort of illustrate what is the appropriate diagnostic algorithm and what are the possible treatments, because there were unfortunately so many patients being told by their physicians that there was nothing that you could do when in fact there are things you can do at this point. Well, I'm excited to hear about some of those things (laughs) later as we get into our discussion. But first, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about the methods and the ICAR process. You and I have both led ICAR documents um, and been through that process, but I think we have uh, probably a lot of listeners who have not done that uh, before or really read in depth the methods of an ICAR document. So just in brief, I'd like to hear a little bit about the process and then also how the ICAR process differs from other systematic reviews, guidelines, and consensus documents. So it's really a quite iterative review process and sticking to sort of highest evidence principles. So basically we create a section guideline of all the different things that we wanted to focus on and touch on on the document. And then we assigned that to an author. And then that author performed a systematic review using Prisma guidelines of the literature, using pretty standard criteria of the years 
looked into and and then basically from that systematic review made a recommendation development if possible. So if there was enough evidence based on that review to make recommendations, then we asked the authors to, if there was not enough evidence to make recommendation, then simply stating, you know, what the level of evidence was and, and where we were at with that is, is the conclusion of each section. That was then finalized into a first draft and we proceeded to our first iterative review process where that was then sent to a second author and that was then reviewed and revised sent back to the first author, sent back to the second author. And then finally, you know, the second and first author and the section editor came to a consensus. And then that whole entire aspect was sent to a third author for final review. So many iterative reviews of the same data and literature to make sure that no one missed anything important, that we were framing things in the right context and so on. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a, a completely online process, and it's several steps of review and consensus at each step. And then eventually, you kind of get to a final product where there's been lots of um, levels of input and uh, discussion and review and, in most cases, consensus, although I think... <laughs> yes. um, in some aspects, sometimes there's there's still a little bit of disagreement at the end. And that's kind of what makes research and investigation and discovery fun. So the authors for these types of projects, usually this is a multidisciplinary effort and not just within otolaryngology or rhinology. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the backgrounds of some of the authors that you had involved here? Yes, you're right in that it's not just rhinology or even just otolaryngology because so much about olfaction actually has to do with neurology and neurologic issues as well as other systemic processes. So we had neurologists, we had endocrinologists, we had metabolic and renal experts, a whole host of other backgrounds that contributed to the document so that we could make sure that we were covering all the possible etiologies of the disease process. I think that's one of the biggest strengths of the ICAR documents is that it's, it is such a multidisciplinary effort and, and everyone kind of looking at things from different angles and then coming together to create that final consensus statement. So let's really get into what you found. Um, I'd love to hear what some of the aspects were that had the highest levels of evidence in the realm of olfaction, whether that's in diagnostic modalities or some of our therapies that we offer. What can you tell us about uh, some of the things that are most supported in the literature? You know, a lot of the literature in olfaction is relatively new or recent. And so in many areas, there wasn't very high level, but in certain areas there, there were so for example, just looking at how uh, loss or distortion of olfaction affects a patient's quality of life, there's actually very good high-level evidence discussing that and looking into that. As far as different etiologies go, in our own field, the relationship between sinonasal inflammation, um, like chronic sinusitis and loss of olfaction is quite well-developed. 
And we have quite good level of evidence just discussing that relationship and what we know about that relationship and what we don't. And then interestingly, uh, and just sort of more in the last decade, within the neurologic literature, there is better and better evidence tying loss of olfaction to neurodegenerative diseases. So for example, things like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, Lewy body dementia. One of the really interesting things for me was the discovery of all the different neurologic or different neurotransmitter disease states that could show loss of olfaction or distortion of olfaction as part of their processes, some of the earliest signs, even people who have mild cognitive dysfunction, people with depression, people with schizophrenia, people with autism, all of these neurologic disease states show some alteration in olfaction. So I found that really interesting. Olfaction is like the canary in the coal mine of what is going on in the brain. And we can really think of this sense as a marker of so many different issues that are going on. There's also quite good level evidence uh, for a particular um, endocrinologic disorder. So for example, hypothyroidism, uh, people with diabetes, those types of states. And then as far as you know, we kind of jump to treatment, what we have really great evidence about, high-level evidence, is olfactory training. Hopefully everyone that's listening has heard of that at this point. When I first started researching olfactory training, again, a decade ago, when I would ask that question in audiences, almost no one had heard of it. But now when I ask, almost everybody raises their hand. And so I think that we've done a good job raising awareness about olfactory training. Hopefully this document does a good job of raising that awareness to people even outside of rhinology in our field. And um, olfactory training has great evidence to allow for the rehab, the rehabilitation of olfaction, regardless of etiology. That's one of the best things about it is it could be from trauma, it could be from aging, it could be from Parkinson's, it could be from a post-viral loss. It seems to help with all of those different etiologies. One additional thing that I actually had run a randomized controlled trial on, and that is included in this document, is using steroid irrigations in addition to olfactory training to increase that efficacy level. So we know just looking at sort of steroid treatment of olfactory loss or distortion that we don't have great evidence for systemic steroids like prednisone, even though that's probably the number one thing that most otolaryngologists will jump to when they see a patient with loss of olfaction. We don't actually have great evidence unless it's the patient who is a post-traumatic loss within like the first week of their loss. We have some evidence regarding that, but otherwise not so much. And then the other very common thing that we see people using is a steroid nasal spray. Sprays don't really reach the olfactory cleft. And this has been borne out in high level evidence, randomized controlled trials that steroid sprays do not help people with loss of olfaction from you know, other etiologies like post-viral and, and idiopathic etiologies. So for those people, steroid irrigation is really the one thing that has randomized controlled trial evidence to show it helps. There is also high level evidence regarding use of omega-3 after endoscopic skull base surgery in patients with olfactory loss after that type of surgery. Um, that's from a randomized control trial also that I did with you as a co-author, actually. We started that at Emory and continued it at Stanford. And that actually showed a really impressive precipitous drop in the number of patients after skull base surgery who were having persistent loss over time. And so that is something for that particular group of patients that I recommend. But I also actually mention it to patients who have smell loss from other etiologies due to the 
common inflammatory issue that may be at the root of olfactory loss in multiple etiologies. Finally, you know, I would say when you look at the other treatment options that we discuss in this manuscript, there are many options. So for example, topical vitamin A is an option for treatment, although it doesn't have the highest level evidence as those other things I just discussed. After trauma, oil zinc. For other etiologies of smell loss, zinc is not really recommended because it doesn't have the evidence. And in fact, a randomized controlled trial showed not only no evidence to suggest its benefit, but perhaps a worsening in patients who are in the zinc group versus the control group. So only after trauma would we recommend oral zinc. Other options are the omega-3 for the post-viral or idiopathic groups. The not enough data and no current recommendations are things like alpha-lipoic acid, uh, intranasal theophylline, intranasal insulin, uh, PRP oral steroids. And so those are things, you know, that we just don't have enough evidence about, but we actually have made a recommendation against certain things, which we have good evidence to show it does not help. So things like systemic vitamin A, minocycline, systemic phosphodiesterase inhibitors, that includes things like theophylline, um, systemically pentoxifylline, caffeine, intranasal zinc. I think hopefully everyone that's listening knows that that can cause an irreversible smell loss if used. And then again, oral zinc specifically for non-post-traumatic olfactory dysfunction. So those are kind of a brief rundown of the levels of evidence of treatment. And that can actually be found in an algorithm for diagnosis and management at the very end of this ICAR document. So for those people that maybe don't have the time to read through the entire document, they can go to that algorithm at the end and find a lot of really good information. Thank you so much for the synopsis of high and low levels of evidence. I was actually going to ask about low levels of evidence (laughs) after the high levels of evidence and and you jumped on it even before (laughs) I thought of it. And I, you know, I have to say that you have taught me personally so much about olfaction just because of your interest in it and your excitement about it. As I think back on my own career, I certainly became much more acquainted with olfactory training and omega-3 and thinking about the use of high volume steroid irrigations rather than defaulting to a simple nasal spray. Your influence even prior to leading this document has been distinctly palpable in I think lots of people's careers. So just wanted to take a moment to thank you for that and for leading the document. Thank you so much, Sarah. That means a lot coming from you. (laughs) I think um, one of the things that that we tend to find out in these ICAR documents is maybe some of the things that might be on the horizon or might be coming forward in our diagnosis or treatment of disorders, things that might not be on people's minds, might not be at at the forefront of their treatment paradigms yet. So Maybe you can tell us about just a couple things that we might be seeing in the future that that might look exciting and, you know, may need a little more evidence still, but things that we should look out for. I'd love to talk about that stuff. I, as you know, I'm really excited about researching this area and there's now more people doing research in this area. So hopefully we will be able to move the bar faster to find some help for these patients. Something that is really interesting to me that is on the horizon that I'm currently doing research in is PRP or platelet enrichment. Looking at 
taking patients' own blood, spinning it down to a really concentrated aspect of the plasma that has platelets, platelets and growth factors. This growth factor rich concentration, I'm now injecting into the olfactory cleft. So I did a pilot study prior to the pandemic looking into this because it was showing some interesting results in other fields, other specialties, specifically neurology, which I keep up to date on their literature as it can inform a lot of what we do with olfaction. PRP injected into the olfactory cleft from the neurologic literature. Uh, PRP has been shown to help with nerve regeneration, nerve functioning. And so I wanted to try it for olfaction. In the pilot study that I ran prior to the pandemic, although it was a very small number of patients and certainly could not conclude any form of efficacy from that pilot study with no control group, I did show safety. I did show feasibility. There was an interesting enough improvement in patients' threshold in that small number of patients. It did show an interesting enough improvement in threshold in that pilot study that I did want to try a randomized controlled trial. And that is now what I'm running, uh, a randomized controlled trial using PRP injections into the olfactory cleft. We don't have the end of that data yet. We will hopefully have that to present soon. My fellow from several years ago, Carol Yan, who's now at UCSD, is a second site of the study. So patients can be enrolled at either site. Uh, so that's perhaps something that we'll find uh, efficacy from. We'll have to wait and see what this randomized control trial shows. And then one other thing to sort of note is an area of research interest of mine is electrical recording and stimulation at the olfactory epithelium. Recording, because it can give us much better quantitative evidence of what is the exact level of olfactory loss. And you lose all the biases that come along with these scratch and sniff or sniff and stick smell pens. That's a very subjective way actually of testing smell. And then we'll actually get to know a lot more about what is the, the type of loss from the olfactory epithelium. And perhaps we'll be able to use that then to use electrical stimulation very precisely and specifically for each patient to help improve regeneration. So in a nutshell, those are a couple of different areas that are really exciting to me moving forward. Thank you so much, Zara. Thank you for your work on this ICAR olfaction document. We know that the ICAR documents have really helped our understanding of rhinology in various areas. Uh, we now have rhinosinusitis, along with an update, allergic rhinitis with a pending update, skull-based surgery, and now olfaction. And soon we'll be seeing other areas as well, such as sinonasal tumors and sleep apnea. This has been an excellent discussion. And again, congratulations to you and your colleagues on your publication. And thank you, of course, to our Scope It Out listeners. This is Sarah Wise for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm signing off for now, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.